Greg. Well, good morning, church family. Uh, it is a joy to be with you again this morning. Uh, those songs were a blessing to my heart, and I'm sure to yours as well. Uh, this sermon is 10 years in the making or so. Um, I preached it when I was here at Shepherd's Bible College, and I absolutely flunked it. I got up here, and I just looked down like this the whole time. Uh, so hopefully that won't happen this morning. The, I got the, the one good uh, compliment I got was that the content was good, uh, but over the course of the week I've changed all that, so we'll, we'll see if it's, it's still good. But take your Bibles and turn in them to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we'll be focusing on verses 28 to 30, uh, but I want you to place your finger on verse 18 because we want to read some of the context. Uh, but as you turn there, I want you to notice where it is that you're turning. We're not jumping to the start of a book, but we're jumping into the middle of a book. And as such, there's a lot that's happened before our verses, and there's still much more that will come after them. And so as we open up this book together, it is important to remember what has come before us. So in the first three chapters, Paul has laid out for us man's condemnation, that we lack righteousness. And then from uh, verse 21 of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5, he tells us the great solution to this problem. He, we, he tells us that we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. We are given God's righteousness for the lack of ours. Then in chapters 6 to 8, we're instructed with what follows salvation, and that's what's called sanctification. Sanctification is the result and benefit of being justified. And then the remainder of the book is gener it generally just deals with application of these gospel truths, how we are to live in light of this. So our chapter is, is chapter 8, and in it, it's, it's the chapter on sanctification, but more specifically, it's shifting its focus on the role of the Holy Spirit and His role in a believer's life. It's through the indwelling Spirit that we can overcome our, fl our flesh <coughs> and are able to live a fruitful and faithful Christian life. Left to our own devices, we would fail and fall time and time and time again, as I'm sure we're all acutely aware. But this chapter starts by reminding us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you look at verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It then goes on to teach us that through the Spirit's help, we have an obligation to live in step with the Spirit, rather than in step with our flesh and our sinful desires. This is in the middle portion of the, of the um, verses. Then following that, we see that not only is the creation itself longing for ultimate redemption, where all things are made new, but believers also are longing and groaning for it. We each, with the help of the Holy Spirit, groan and eagerly wait with anticipation for glory. We long for restoration of the earth and to see Christ face to face. We long to be rid of sin and to be purely in his presence. But as the verses mention, while we wait, there is suffering and pain here on earth. And so we need help as we, as we wait. We need promises to sustain us through these difficulties as we wait for glory. 
So now having laid the foundation to get to our passage, take the word of God and follow along with me as I read. We'll read from verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of, of the creation waits eagerly for the, eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to, to, to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Bow your heads with men and come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are blessed people to be able to read your word, Lord, to be able to hear from you, to hear of your great love, your great plan, your great redemption, things that we truly do not deserve. Lord, help us to see the great promise with, with which you have for us today. Help us to take great comfort from it. And Lord, if we are living in rebellion to it, help us to, to be challenged and convicted by it. Thank you for your word. Would you help us to, to hear from it now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, recently I've been reading my boys uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, 
Um, oh, and my girl too. It's, it's tricky having three boys and then one boy, uh, one girl, because you're so used to just saying my boys. But I've been reading my children, uh, The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. In this story, there's a young boy named Shasta, and he embarks on a perilous journey to the land of Narnia. He is unaware of what lies between him and this mystical and magical kingdom. As he goes through the adventure, Shasta encounters various challenges, trials, hardships, and even battles. But strangely, through it all, this inexperienced young boy comes out of the adventure unscathed and unharmed. In the book, we're told the reason why. Nearing the end, Shasta finally encounters Aslan, and Aslan tells him. Aslan says, I was the lion. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that, so that it would come to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to re- receive you. Aslan was keeping watch of Shasta the whole way through all of the story, from start to finish. He was guiding him, protecting him, and working everything together for a purpose beyond Shasta's understanding or comprehension. In one of the moments in the story, Shasta was walking along a perilous mountaintop, completely unaware that mere inches away from his foot was a terrible and deadly fall if he succumbed to it. But he was unaware because Aslan was walking right beside him, not only shielding him from the danger, but shielding him from the very view and knowledge of that danger. Aslan protected him from any slip, any fall, and any danger. There were many moments like this in the story, and there were also many twists and turns that seemed to hinder Shasta's journey. But these moments were actually and ultimately useful in leading him to his greatest good. He ended up in a royal, with a royal family in Archenland, where he was loved and cared for. He made it home. Just as Aslan guided and protected Shasta, our passage today teaches us about God's promise to work all things for good to those who love him. A thousand times more than Shasta needed to rest in Aslan's care, we need to rest and rely on God's work in each of our lives, for it is always for our good. Look again at our verses of consideration, verse 28 to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. In these verses, we find first that there is a great promise of God. That is at the start of verse 28. Second, we learn who this promise is for. It is for the people of God. It's in the second half of verse 28. And then in the remaining verses, we find third, that we see the purpose of God. These are our three points for this morning. The promise of God, the people of God, and the purpose of God. 
The main point of the text is the promise, and the two other points are are supporting pillars, holding it up for all to see and to, to admire and to take comfort in. We want to look at these three points this morning because in doing so, we will be greatly comforted in knowing that whatever happens and whatever takes place in our lives, God is using it for our good. We want to study this text and take it to heart so that whatever confronts us now or in the future, we can be comforted by and calm knowing that God is at work. Our circumstances do not need to control us, but rather we need to be controlled by Christ and the comfort that he offers. In fact, our circumstances may crumble all around us. We may even have our friends abandon us or our family leave us, a spouse forsake us, Our health may even be stripped from us. A verdict of death may be said to only be mere weeks away. But through it all, this promise from God is able to uphold us and keep us until finally, after our groaning for glory, we have no reason to groan any longer because we will be with him in glory. Let's look first at the promise of God that we see being made here. Verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Paul is emphasizing the majesty and glory of God by pointing to the certainty of God's redemptive plan. God uses all things, all events in history, every moment of your life that God is using for your good. Paul is stressing here the sovereignty of God every moment of your life. R.C. Sproul is famous for many reasons, but one of the reasons that he sticks in my mind is because he's just, he's just so good with works, words. Listen to him on this topic. He says, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then ladies and gentlemen, there is not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. We can have confidence in this promise of God because it is made by God. And Romans is not the only place that teaches of God's sovereignty. It's a bedrock doctrine of all of Scripture. If you turn over to Ephesians, just a few pages over, in the first chapter you'll see this taught again. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 tells us the same thing. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The reason we can have confidence in this promise this morning is because God is the one who has made it, and God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. The The sovereign of the universe, the one who has ordained all of time, is the one who is orchestrating all events and time for our good. Back in our passage in in Romans, what is in particular, uh, although the the passage could be conveying everything or all things, uh, in the the text, or generally it means all things, but in the, in the context of the passage, it can, mean every, uh, it can mean more precisely what is being referred to back in verse 18. And sorry, that was, I was jumping over my words there. Uh, what I was trying to say is that the, the 
It can mean all things generally, but in the passage there is a more precise meaning. Uh, And so if you look back at verse 18 in Romans 8, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The things that are being spoken of, of here specifically are talking about sufferings in our present times. That is what Paul has primarily in his target as he's writing. This is not to say that everything which happens to us is good in and of itself. Suffering is tragic and sin is miserable. Death is the most unnatural occurrence in all of life. Evil is still evil and bad is still bad. This promise doesn't change any of that. And so when a believer comes to you and says, I'm suffering, we do not respond with, wow, that is, that's great to hear. God is, that's, that's good news. God is going to make that good for you. No, that would be a terrible response. What is being said here is that God redeems evil and uses it for good. And so we weep with those who are weeping and we rejoice with those who rejoice. But we do not just give a glib answer in times of trial. Because God does not make everything good, but instead God uses everything for our good. There is a big difference. One commentator has said on this that the the things themselves may not be good, but God harmonizes them together for, for believers' ultimate good because his goal is to bring bring them to perfection in his presence. Thomas Watson wrote a a book just on verse 28 alone, and he said, several poisonous ingredients put together, being tempered by the skill of the apocrythicary, I think that's like a doctor, um, make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. So all God's providences, being divinely tempered and sanctified, do work together for the best the saints. Now, if you're thinking, if God doesn't turn the events themselves good, then what exactly is being referred to here by the word good? How does God use the events for good? Uh, That's a, a good question to have, and Lord willing, we'll answer it in the third point, but for now, we'll press on, and we'll come to our second point, the people of God. Look again at verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. As we continue to look at this divine promise, our confidence in its unwavering assurance grows as we understand who the intended recipients are. They are God's own people. It's not given to everyone indiscriminately. It is given to those who love God and to those who are called by God. These are two very important descriptions that let us know who it is that receives this great promise from God. The first description views our relationship with God from from our side, and the second one views our relationship with God from His side. They are two sides of the same coin. On one side, we love God, and on the other, He called us. The first side of the coin, the first description is for those who love God. Who are those who love God but Christians? Throughout Scripture, God's people are described in a number of ways. They are described as God's sheep, God's flock, God's sons or God's children, as God's bride or as His church. They are called believers, true worshippers, saints, and Christians. 
to name uh, just a few of our titles. But in our verse, we find the description, those who love God. And that is a very revealing description of what a Christian is, what a Christian's character is like. It's not a new term, and it's not one that we should be surprised by. Throughout the Bible, God's people have often been described as those who love Him. We see it right back near the beginning in in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus 20, verse 5 to 6. Here, God is making His covenant with His people. He distinguishes between those who love Him and those who hate Him. Exodus 20, verse 5 to 6 reads, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And then from from there on out, it's used time and time again. You can see it in Deuteronomy and Nehemiah and Psalms, all over the place, the phrase, those who love God or those who are lovers of God is used again and again. It's repeated, it is a repeated refrain of Scripture that those who are God's are those who love Him. But why does it matter that Christians have this title? Because saved people love their Saviour. Loving God is a very distinguishing characteristic of a Christian's life. If, uh, if you turn over to John chapter 14, which our pastor will get to in the new year, I think, eh? Uh, <clears throat> you see what a believer does. John chapter 14, verse 15. Christ speaking, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, the mention of love is there with a condition as well. So that's one way we can love God, by keeping his commandments. And I want to ask you, is that a correct characteristic that describes you? Do you love God more than you love yourself? Do you place him above you? Is he seated as king over your life? Do you see his glory, his perfection, his holiness, his character, and do you respond in love and adoration? Is there a satisfaction that you get when you come to the Lord God? Or is is there a, a lack of love, a lack of contentment, a lack of desire? Out of your love for him, do you desire to make much of him or to make much of yourself? What is your character like? But secondly, we see that those who receive this promise are not only lovers of God, but they are also those who are called by God. This phrase is not assigning the the promise to a second group, uh, but is further just clarifying who the recipients of the promise are. It's one and the same. But this time, the description is from God's perspective. The word here used for called is speaking of what is known as the effectual call. There are people all over the world who have been called and witnessed to by Christians. They've had the gospel shared with them, and then they have been called to respond to the gospel. This is not what has been spoken of here. This is a general call, one that goes out to all people everywhere. 
What is being spoken of is the effectual call. This is irresistible grace. It means that to those who receive this call, they will be saved. Those who receive this divine call are destined for salvation. Verse 30 explains this. Look at at the verse, verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. It will take place, that justification. It's crucial to grasp that our calling doesn't originate from our love for God. God's call is what engenders our love for him. God's calling provokes and ignites our love, and we must always get that around the right way. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19 reminds us. We love because he first loved us. In other words, we are lovers of God because God, in his sovereign grace, has called us. Or you could say we are lovers of God because God is a lover of us. And so you must stop here and ask yourself, has this call reached you. Evangelists may have called you, your friends and family may have called you, your conscience has definitely called you, the gospel has called out to you to respond and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but has the Holy Spirit called you with an inward and irresistible call? Pink writing on this chapter says, have you been spiritually called from darkness to light, from death to life, from the world to Christ, from south to to God. It is a matter of the greatest moment that you should know whether you have been truly called of God. Has then the thrilling, life-giving music of that call sounded and reverberated through all the chambers of your soul? But how may I be sure that I have received such a call? There is one thing right here in our text which should enable you to to ascertain. They who have been efficaciously called love God. Instead of hating him, they now esteem him. Instead of fleeing from him in terror, they now seek him. Instead of caring not whether they conduct their their conduct honored him, their deepest desire now is to please and glorify him. My friends, have you been called? I remember my early years growing up in a Christian family. I hated God because I knew I was never good enough. And as much as I would try and endeavor and do the Christian things, I was still not good enough. Until one day, I heard the gospel message again. And I heard that it changes you from the inside out. And I went back to my room at a camp. And I prayed out to God. And I remember love flooding into my heart. I changed from a hater of God into someone who loves God. And if if you have been called, you know that same feeling. But what is the purpose of our calling? Why did he call us? Why does he love us? This brings us to our third point, the purpose of God. Why did God extend this divine call to us? Why did he specifically call you? Why did he call anyone? Look again at the, at, verses, at the end of verse 28 to 30. To those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, 
so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It is here that we get the answer to the question of what type of good is being spoken of. But before I tell you the answer, let me quickly tell you what it's not, because so many people want to give you the wrong answer. God's calling and redemption is not primarily aimed at ensuring our health, our wealth, or our prosperity. If that were the case, the Apostle Paul, the author of this passage, the one who gives us this promise from God, failed miserably in, in carrying it out in his Christian life. If you flick over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see just how terribly he did in applying a, a wealthy and prosperous gospel to himself, a prosperity gospel. Paul tells us of some of what he went through in his own life in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am also. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been in, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of, of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? God's purpose in, in, in calling and redeeming a people for himself is so much greater than mere temporal blessings. His purpose is that his people would be conformed to the image of his son. The answer to what is, is the good that, that, that God causes to work in all things is spiritual good. So when we read Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good, we're talking about a spiritual transformation, a spiritual goodness. God uses every moment of every day so that his people may look more and more like his precious son, Jesus Christ. That is what has been spoken of here. That is God's purpose with his promise, that we would look like Christ. And because this promise of conformity is our destiny, we can be confident that the promise is true because it is God at work. Look again at verse 30. It says, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. That is because in these verses, there is five links, five inseparable events that happen in life that cannot be broken or interrupted. Once one link is placed, the, all, all the others must follow. But did you notice in the verses who it is that is working? It is God who is doing all the action. He is the one who foreknew. 
He alone predestined, he sovereignly called, he justified, and he alone is responsible to hold us until we are glorified. He alone works in the passage. That is the very reason that we can have assurance that this promise is true, because it is God who is at work. God will not fail us, because God will not fail himself. We have confidence because we know that all things turn out for our good because God has set his covenantal love and affection upon us. He has predestined us to be like his son. He has called us into salvation. He has justified us with Christ's very own righteousness. He will certainly glorify us. He's not going to leave us out to hang and dry. If you flip over to Philippians chapter 1, you see again this, this promise. Philippians 1 verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete the work that he sets out on. From our time in God's word this morning, we have been instructed by God that his plan will work out as he sees fit. There is not a molecule out of place in this world of his. There are plenty of things that are wrong, evil and sinful, but even these he will be able to, he he is able to overcome and use for his good pleasure of seeing his people be made more like our Saviour, Jesus Christ. These verses teach us that God has made a promise for his people and that promise is guaranteed through his purpose. Just as Aslan was this unseen guardian working for Shasta's good, so is our God actively at work in our lives, fulfilling his promises, even in the twists and turns of each of our lives. How do we respond to such a great promise like this? How do we respond to these gospel truths that God is at work in every moment of our lives? Well, I think first, the truth of God's sovereignty in in this promise should ultimately comfort us. He does all things for our good. The God who establishes the heavens and the earth, the one who numbered and named the stars, is the same God that is holding you tight through every moment of your life. There is no surer pillow to rest your head on at night. What does a winning lottery ticket have in comparison? A ticket may be misplaced, stolen, or even turn out to be a fake, but God will never be lost. He will never be taken away, and he is more sure than your next breath. Trust in this God. Praise the Lord for this comfort we have in his promise. But then secondly, that God does all all things for the Christian's good should challenge us. That situation in your life that you have been grumbling about, and complaining against? What about that relationship that you have been avoiding? God has brought that person into your life for your good, and if they're a believer, for their good too. Do not squander the opportunities that God has placed in your life. They are there for your good. They may be difficult, they may be hard, they may be taxing, they may be exhausting, but God has them there for a reason. A lot of them are certainly not pleasant, but they are used by God 
for your good. And so you can go through them knowing that. Everything God will use for your good and not for your ruin. Third, that God does all things for our good should convict us. That bad attitude that you've been carrying around, there is no reason to have it. Rejoice in all things. The one who can move mountains is the one who has ordained and orchestrated your life. Every breath you take and every terrible driver in front of you Every moment you are awake is a kind gift from the one who is using it, using all things for your good. The people in Auckland with, with all the traffic should be the most sanctified people in all the land. This is the promise that you have as a believer. We should be convicted from it. We should be challenged by it. But most importantly, we should be comforted in it. But if you haven't picked up already, this promise is only for the Christian here this morning. Are you a believer? Are you a lover of God? Are you one that God looks at and says, this is the one whom I have called? Is that you? If not, then this promise does not carry any comfort to your weary soul. Sin will only make you miserable but Christ offers you eternal good. Will you not take it? Will you not part with your momentary pleasure of sin and instead be joined eternally to to the pleasure of Christ? Why would you squander eternity for a moment? Today is the day of salvation, but may it be the day that you receive this promise from God too. Turn back to Romans 8, if you're not already there. This promise only gets better if we read the remaining verses. This promise of God is is established, it's laid down, it's it's told to us who it's for. We recipients then get to read the next verses, knowing that these verses are for us. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Believer, this is the promise that we have in God, that he works all things together for our good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his promise. But if you are not a believer this morning, then it's the exact opposite. All things 
will work against you for your ultimate downfall because your only guarantee is that you will be separated from God for all of eternity. There is a great comfort and a great support to the believer in this passage, but there is a great call to the unbeliever. There is no rest, no security, no comfort you can have in this life or the life to come if you do not come and bow your, your heart and your knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must do that. Let us pray. Our gracious and sovereign God, Lord, as we come to your word, help us to be in awe of this tremendous promise that you have given to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose, that you work in each moment. Lord, there are so many days and moments where we groan for glory, but sometimes we just groan against what you have put in our path. Lord, help us to, to live in light of this text, help us to go through our life knowing that you have caused all things to work together for our good. Lord, help us to take comfort in this, that come what may, we can be comforted by Christ. Lord, help us to be challenged by our sinful and selfish, selfish desires where we just want comfort and ease. Lord, help us ultimately to want Christ more than anything. And Lord, for those who have not bowed their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, would they see this terrific promise? Would they not be attracted to the, to the gifts that you give, but rather would they see the beauty of Christ and be ultimately attracted to him? Would they see the security that is in Christ alone? Would they confess their sins and they, would they accept Christ's righteousness to cover them so that one day we may all stand before our God, holy and righteous and accepted? We thank you for your, for your word. We thank you for your church and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.